Hi, good evening. Uh, welcome to the LSE Middle East Center. I'm Courtney Freer. I'm a research officer at uh, the Middle East Center. And more importantly, we have Salman Sheikh, my former boss, uh, here with us this evening. Um, Salman is the founder and CEO of the Sheikh Group, which is a consultancy focused on promoting dialogue and negotiation, especially on the track two line in Syria. Um, he was also the director of Brookings Institution's Doha Center, which is where we met. Um, and his research there focused on conflict resolution, domestic policy, and geopolitics on the of the Middle East, with a particular focus on the Levant and the GCC states. Uh, Salman has extensive ex experience as well working with uh, the United Nations in a number of offices, including as Special Assistant Middle East and Asia in the Office of the Undersecretary General for Political Affairs, Political Advisor to the Secretary General's Personal Representative for Lebanon during the 2006 war, Special Assistant to the Special Coordinator to the Middle East Peace Process, and Program Officer for the Special Representative for Children in Armed Conflict. So he's very well placed to, to speak to us tonight. He also served as Director for Policy and Research in the private office of Her Highness Sheikh Hamza bin Nasser al-Misned, uh, the consort of the former emir of the state of Qatar. And you've probably seen him on any number of kind of news shows uh, talking to us mostly about, about Syria these days. So I'll go ahead and let him speak for up to about 40 minutes, and then we'll open it up for Q&A, just to remind you to put your phones on silent if you haven't already. And if you do want to tweet, the hashtag is LSE Syria. Thank you. Well, thanks very much, uh, Courtney. I'm not sure if, I'm, if I could be your boss anymore, so, uh, but, uh, but thank you for the welcome and uh, I want to thank you all for spending your, uh, part of your evening at least uh, with me. Um, uh, yes, uh, we, uh, we are a political consultancy very much focused on promoting dialogue and mediation in the Middle East. As you can imagine, it's still pretty much a growth field. Um, unfortunately, we're not, uh, we're not out of a job anytime soon. Let me just mention, uh, in fact, some of my colleagues who are here as well, Yanis Palikaris, our COO, Sam Plumley, who is our Syria uh, team leader, and right at the back I see Dima, who is heading our northeast work on Syria, Dima Naman as well. Uh, also, uh, while I'm at it, um, Ambassador Derek Plumley, it's a pleasure to have you here as well, sir. Uh, of course, the former UN envoy for Lebanon. Um, our work on Syria... Um, pretty much started in 2013, uh, actually in 2011 at the start of the conflict um, when I was heading Brookings Doha. Um, we very much were told very early on by Syrians and of course it was at the time of the uh, Arab uh, revolutions or the so-called Arab Spring, it was important to go out and listen to uh, Syrians themselves as well as to Egyptians or, or Libyans or Yemenis and others and that's exactly what we did. And we've been pretty much doing that um, ever since. Um, we started the Sheikh Group in September 2015, and since then we've been even more operational in, in our efforts to talk to Syrians and to try to find ways um, with them uh, where their ideas can, can actually play a much more important uh, uh, role in the political process or efforts to get a political process going um, in Syria. I'll talk a lot more about that tonight. Um, I see the title is sort of Mission Impossible, the Syrian-led political process, and that's what I, I really want to focus on. Um, in terms of the societal approach that we've taken, we've, we've engaged with political figures, representatives of armed opposition groups. In fact, we were probably one of the first in 2014 that started to ask the armed opposition groups, what do you think of a political process, what are your ideas in relation to that, because they had become increasingly important when it came uh, to a process. Uh, business people, professionals, 
civil society actors, influential figures within specific communities, including from the opposition, so-called independents and, and loyalists, loyalists to uh, the Assad government. Um, we've taken very much a bottom-up and a top-down approach. That's, that's our focus. It is to bring Syrian ideas to those, especially as the Syrian conflict has no longer just become about Syria or Syrians, to those in international capitals and the UN, and to see if anyone will listen, and to see if that can actually have a positive impact with regards to the process. Uh, as you can tell, eight years into this awful conflict, um, we haven't yet succeeded. Um, and yet, our work continues because uh, the one place where we are heartened, actually, is by listening to Syrians. And the fact that Syrians are still willing to come together from all different backgrounds at this stage, I think, tells a lie to many who would say that uh, uh, Syrians uh, actually are um, a marginal to efforts to get a political process going, and that um, the situation is likely only to be settled uh, by key international actors. I will talk about that. Of course, you need both. You need the bottom-up and you need the top-down. Um, before I talk about that, let me just take stock of where we are in today's conflict. It's, it's a conflict which is, uh, I started, personally I started, I was 40 years of age. I'm now 48, um, focusing on this. Um, some of my younger colleagues were younger, <laughs> and are still younger in this respect. Um, Assad must go, I must tell you, is no longer on anyone's immediate agenda. Um, instead, we're now working to a horizon focused on constitutional reforms and elections in 2021. Um, in fact, 2021, three years from now, is, is, a, is a date that often comes up, and not just from those, um, uh, those on the loyalist side who, who can say that Assad must run and he will win, but even those who have engaged with us from opposition and independent circles. But with Syria divided into zones of influence, controlled or dominated by external powers, Russia and Iran, Turkey and the US, major questions remain. Um, what can international powers do to reduce the risks of renewed conflict whilst avoiding a long-term partition of the country? And as Russia seeks to advance a political process on its terms, something I would wish to, to talk about, um, we are engaging a lot um, with Russia. I've just been in Moscow a short while ago, in fact, been sitting with Russians amongst and Americans and others over the weekend um, as well, Europeans too. Um, as they start, tried to seek legitimation for their client and support for reconstruction, can a Syrian-led political process be forged that is sufficiently balanced <coughs> and inclusive to meet the UN's standards and even those of those who have supported the opposition, the so-called small group? And what should these standards be? These are still very big questions which remain. Um, Many are pointing, of course, to the military conflict subsiding. Well, in many ways, that's because very brutal measures have been used and so-called de-escalation zones have been established, but they've only served as a way to redirect forces. Uh, to, so that now, today, uh, there are a, number, a few number of pockets of areas, particularly in Idlib in the northwest of Syria, where you have opposition, and, of course, in the northeast of Syria, where the U.S. is. Um, so military conflict 
appears to be subsiding as regime um, as the regime appears to reach the outer limits of what areas it can retake without affecting the interests of external players. But don't mistake this for stability. Um, the problems now loom in the three Syrias. It is a f de facto fragmented environment that we look at today. In fact, the Assad government controls only about 56% of the country. 44% of it is under either the opposition or being led by the Syrian Democratic Council, which is heavily, uh, partly a YPG, uh, PYD led on the, on the Kurdish side. In Idlib, uh, the lull might in fact be temporary. It could break down as a result of recalculations between Turkey and Russia. Certainly the regime in Iran will continue to apply pressure. There will be plenty of potential pretext for renewed Russian action. The deal is surviving, not because its terms are met, but because of the Russian-Turkish cooperation, the vital strategic importance of that, and the mutual understandings uh, that they have reached fam and are being firmly backed up uh, by Europe and the United States. Of course, there is still a looming problem with regards to Hayat Tahrir sham and other Al-Qaeda um, affiliates there, and we don't yet have a real governance plan in Idlib either. Instead, we have local councils and something called the Salvation Government, which has been set up by HTS. So we have sort of parallel administrations. So certainly there is much more work to be done there, even if the Assad government is not present. In the Northeast, that is perhaps where the greatest risk of a, of a devolution into further conflicts exists, given festering grievances against the PYD-dominated governance and security structures in the area seen by many as an unrepresentative and illegitimate foreign ideological import um, by Arabs and even by some Kurds, um, as well as a range of actors seeking to play on those grievances to undermine the project and expand their influence, be it Turkey, the regime, or Iran. President Erdogan has also just made it clear after the recent sort of quartet meeting of, uh, of France, Germany, Turkey, and Russia uh, that its intention to go east of the Euphrates. Right now, they're west, uh, focusing on Talabayad and Ras perhaps initially. Remember, Turkey has a 566-mile border, and uh, it wants to basically establish control over all of it, with the exception of perhaps the northern Aleppo uh, area um, as such. The U.S. has a tough balancing act on its hands, separating arch-rivals Turkey from the PYD, curbing Iranian influence, keeping regime forces at bay, while pursuing and destroying the last remnants of Daesh, of ISIS. And then, of course, there is the government-held areas. Efforts have been made to portray a return to normalcy, but with the exception of a small class surrounding the regime and those profiting from while the war continues, it isn't a new normal that Syrians are comfortable with, as they, as they regularly tell us. Um, the society is fractured, it's more suspicious, more isolated, community by community. Economically, it's weak. The pound, the Syrian pound, as many of you would know, is depreciated by over 90% against the dollar. More than 80%, even inside this area, live below the poverty line, and unemployment is well over 50%. Corruption 
is regularly reported to us by Syrians from within government areas as being rampant and more flagrant than what it was um, in the past, which is saying something. The socio-economic woes are now a catalyst for growing discontent in loyalist ranks, plus growing concentration of the little wealth that leads to a further tension. In fact, there's a small business elite which is doing the best out of this. In fact, I would say to you what we are hearing right now, right now, is a, 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 a somewhat of a crisis of expectations. The victory, the military victory, should have led to much greater gains, but that is not really materializing. It's not materializing, but there's not enough money. The cake has not grown any bigger. In fact, it's still relatively small. And the government is seeking to restore order through means that could aggravate the original drivers of the crisis, punishing past or potential future dissent, relying particularly on Iranian forces, Iranian-backed militias on the ground, um, uh, as well as pursuing so-called demographic engineering to reward loyalists and bring them into key areas. And we can talk about Law 10, and we can talk about Decree 16 um, as examples which seek to constrict, control the space that exists. And the space that exists for, for people in those areas, I think, is something that I would wish to, to come back to um, later on. More broadly, loyalists, independents, and oppositionists all express a sense of losing their shared of understanding of what it is to be Syrian. One coming from Sweda just recently told us at a meeting, we no longer know what our national identity is. This is a threat that Syrians face. It's not helped by the regime, which is actively excluding anyone viewed as a potential source of future unrest, a policy that ends up looking like collective punishment of the conservative, particularly particular communities such as conservative Sunni communities. That's not to say that President Assad does not enjoy support. He does. Um, from minority groups, but also those from the Sunni community, those who still are benefiting from the business and other economic classes. But we would say to you is that the, the more we talk, that group actually seems smaller than it actually appears, especially if they're given the space to be able to express themselves. And again, we can talk about that more. We, but we also hear over and again that Syrians are able and eager to rediscover that shared identity in direct exchanges and that they're able to put shared concerns, territorial integrity of their country, their state, the gradual remove, removal of foreign interference and fighters and many other things above their differences. They need a space in which to be able to do that. There is of course a wider regional dimension, the US potential US-Iran escalation and as you know, probably the number one priority, apart from Daesh, for, Iranian, for U.S. policy is the withdrawal of Iran from Syria. Will they be able to achieve it? Are they, do they are pursuing it the right way? Well, we can talk about that. Of course, there is the Israel-Iran dynamic and the potential for even greater conflict than we've seen so far. And Russia's questionable ability to contain it. And then, as I've sort of already mentioned, the Turkey um, YPG, PYD dynamic as well. So, conditions that may bring further outflows of migration that don't guarantee for the safe return of refugees 
on any meaningful scale, and the potential for further rounds of insurgency and conflict very much do exist. We're not, I would say to you, in an end game. Instead, I would say we're in a, in a period of transition of sorts to what and to how we don't know. Uh, but it's certainly there, it carries high risks. As scholars have shown, average length of civil wars in 2002 was about 10 years. Those with serious characteristics, heightened external involvement, multi-layered, fragmented parties to the conflict, um, uh, including the external interference that we've seen, tend to last much longer. In fact, I'm thinking myself of writing for the first time uh, a book on, on this, and, and I would title it The Syrian Decade. Um, the Syrian Decade and its wider impact in terms of the international system and the international order, but perhaps more on that later. Um, how are internationals responding to this outlook? So just quickly, um, U.S. Western positions on S Syria remain largely unchanged. The Europeans, the EU, I would say that w there is a growing trend towards settling for quote-unquote calm and containment somehow hoping you can freeze the conflict, that European objectives seem to have de facto scaled down to preserving the relative calm that has been generated by what is perceived as close to military regime victory. And some European capitals appear to be settling into acceptance that this state of relative calm may not be ideal, but one they can live with, and that right now there isn't really a political process to work towards. Here, I would put the UK in that bracket increasingly. The word you often hear in some of the centres of power is strategic patience and a certain reluctance to, to get further involved. I must say I find that a little bit perplexing. The United Kingdom government has supported our work for seven, eight years. We've helped, this has helped us along with others, the Swedish, the Swiss, the Dutch, the, recently the Canadian and the German governments, to build real relationships with Syrians and ways forward. And, and I hope uh, that the UK will continue to support that kind of approach. The French and the Germans are still more active, as their recent uh, quadrilateral Istanbul summit showed. They did get, I think, some further concessions from Putin, President Putin, in particular when it came to the Idlib de-escalation, um, and perhaps also have extracted some sort of a deadline on the Constitutional Committee for the end of the year. Not clear, though, that those to have the leverage as much as they would need, they probably can't. It would need a more united and concerted European effort, but also with the United States coming to the US. We've noticed that the US has become more active recently with a new Syria team at the State Department responsible for the Syrian file. Jim Jeffrey and Joel Rayburn are two Syria envoys acting at a pretty senior level. In fact, before the summer, speaking to uh, an American official off the record, I asked him, so what's the Syria policy? He said, well, don't ask me that. We don't even have a process for the policy. Well, since the summer, we do. And there are sort of key elements um, of it. 
Washington appears more proactive, including in a small group, pursuing stated objectives of containing Iran and sustainably defeating the so-called Daesh in Syria, while doubling down on a policy of economically strangling uh, the regime and Iran in the belief that this can erode domestic and regional support for the Assad regime. So its presence in northeast Syria, where probably 65% of Syria's resources are, um, as well as a realization that you have to work, you're not going to take Iran on head first. Instead, you're going to work towards a political process that can lead to the withdrawal of all foreign forces. Is part of a more joined-up policy, I would say to you. Um, I still say, though, that debatable, though, that pressure is certainly needed, but promising part is that linking its objectives, as I've just said, to a credible and real political process. Um, others have also been helping in raising pressure. And here, let me just uh, say the work that has been done by small and medium-sized states, um, particularly with regards to the question of accountability. Now, in political processes and for mediators, sometimes pursuing justice gets in the way, right? It gets in the way of trying to find compromise. Um, but it can also act as a point of leverage. And I, I definitely think that the birth of the international, impartial, independent mechanism that was established under a UN General Assembly resolution to try and overcome the lack of will or ability of the Security Council is a case in point. In fact, talking to colleagues, it seems as if we are getting much closer to cases actually being filed within the triple IM. And that was started by a group of countries, um, Canada, Liechtenstein, and others, um, and, and which has now led to this kind of, uh, of, of resolution and potential action. But here again, a few questions do arise as I've, in order to summarize. Um, are Europe and the US really on the same page regarding Syria? Do they both understand that settling for calm and containment is not sustainable? That you have to manage the conflict through a patient political process? And specifically on the US, which has a military presence in the Northeast and stated objectives for Syria, as I've just said, how can one get it to be more creative and more proactive on a political process? I think that's a key question and something I will keep coming back to. With regards to Russia, I've mentioned it already, but let me dwell on the Russians. Undoubtedly, they are the key actor when it comes to Syria today. The Russians are still trying to find a wedge into a political process, eager to capitalize on the gains made and convert the relatively low-risk investment with high returns, quote-unquote, in Syria into what one uh, Russian official said to us as a retirement package before we start to default. Um, Russians want this for two reasons. It wants to make the situation in Syria more sustainable for itself. It is avoiding a second Afghanistan. In official figures, it's probably only lost about, they say they've lost about 112 servicemen as opposed to the 15,000 or so they lost in Afghanistan um, in a decade. And they do understand that in order to do that, this requires a political process at the end of the day. Secondly, international prestige and proving that Russia can rightly claim global power status on a level to the US. Some would say this is its main objective and priority. 
I would say, from what we've heard, it is wrong to say that the Russians entered uh, Syria in order to confront the West. It was more something to build itself up. But now, Russian domestic opinion wants this to end. In fact, over the weekend, I'll share with you one of our Russian interlocutors, quote-unquote, said Russia's Syria policy is only in the third instance about Syria. It is first about returning to the global stage. Secondly, it's about destroying the foreign fighter threat to Russia. And remember, you have many of them from the um, sudden belly of Russia itself. And then it's only about Syria itself. In this context, Russia is also in interested in averting further escalation in its broader relations with the West and would welcome if cooperation on Syria could facilitate, quote, positive interaction with the U.S. more generally. Though the Russians, who makes the first move, is something that we're watching with fascination and with some frustration at this point in time. Because for Moscow, they're not very hopeful that this can be realized, given the current U.S. domestic political climate. I'll give you another quote. Russia wants to lead on a political process, but knows it cannot lead all the way. So, I would say to you, Nevertheless, there is an opportunity. And, but this requires raising a political process as a priority and more joint work. Also, and this is my main thrust today, of course, it needs Syrian ideas. Otherwise, you will have a situation of the blind leading the blind. <laughs> Russia, uh, Moscow and Washington don't possess all the wisdom in the world in order to make a sustainable political process work. If you're going to take that very difficult path from war to peace, how can you do it without the people themselves? It's up till now, we haven't found a process to do that. Um, so, what is needed? Um, why is an inclusive, Syrian-led political process viable and necessary? And that's what I want to talk about now. Um, we need, of course, before that, to reinforce the current de-escalation in Idlib and the Northeast. We need to focus on getting the Northeast right. We need a renewed U.S. commitment to the Northeast, which is all now welcomed. Its support for the consolidation of Kurdish-led autonomous authority must come with robust efforts to push for reforms towards more legitimate, representative, and accountable governance in these areas. There needs to be genuine power sharing in the long run between Arabs and Kurds and more equitable service distribution to the region's population in that area. Um, we've heard over and again in our dialogue tracks between Syrian Arabs and Syrian Kurds that there is a legitimacy gap that needs to be filled. And governance structures do need to become more inclusive than where they are. But at the same time, an acceptance that the Syrian Democratic Councils have uh, and the SDF have, with U.S. support, have helped to create a semblance of security and stability. And that starting all over again um, probably is not an option. The U.S. must work closely with local communities to identify a clear process for moving the decision-making authority in local governance structures from the PYG, PYD's cadres, to local councils and led and populated by local residents, thus reflecting the diversity of communities 
in the Northeast. Without such efforts, the deepening Arab-Kurdish ethnic strife will offer justification for Turkey to continue its military incursions, opportunities for the regime and Iran to exploit, and incentives for extremists to regroup. Russia's role in this local empowerment process will also be essential, as its military power and alliance with the Syrian government enable it to play alongside the U.S. the role of co-guarantor capable of influencing Damascus and addressing its concerns. Again, on Idlib, I've already talked a bit about this. We need to continue to backstop Turkey's Idlib deal. Um, at the same time, we need to work on local governance. I've already sort of mentioned how much work needs to be done there. And with regards to HDS, we're talking about probably 2,000 to 2,500 so-called irreconcilables that need a firm response, led by Turkey and for others, there needs to be patient work to bring them back into the civil sphere. Again, so we need an element of, of governance and stabilization as well as uh, what, we've, uh, what we've mentioned in terms of uh, the, the military side of things. Secondly, we need to revive a political process at the national level. Syrians accept that such process will not deliver meaningful change in the near term, but oppositionists, independents and others will continue to push for it, which is telling in itself why. A credible process can serve as an avenue for promoting mutual recognition, an essential first step towards reconciliation. It could hold out pathways to reform, further isolating those hawks within the regime and those who seek to maintain the status quo or even return as one Damascene businessman said to us, not to 2011 or even 2000, but to the 1980s. A credible national-level political process, even if slow-moving, provides a framework that facilitates progress on, either, uh, on other issues, pushing for negotiated arrangements between Damascus and Turkey-backed actors in the Northeast, as well as the autonomous administration in the Northeast. It's worth revisiting reasons for the past failures in establishing such a process. There have been missed opportunities from all sides, though largely a case of consistent regime intransigence. Put simply, we haven't yet got to the stage where we've got a political process where the government of Syria has really, in good faith, engaged in a negotiation as such. Um, there's also a general perception of the process as zero-sum, despite the best efforts um, of the UN. So, the idea of a transitional governing body and the communique of the Geneva to the credible non-sectarian governance of 2254. For some Syrians, Syrians, it is and will always be a zero-sum game, but not the majority we have found. Our own work for a long time was focused on elevating, as I've said to you, voices from all spectrums of Syrian society, including from those who um, don't perceive themselves in either camp, the so-called middle ground, and developing, together with opposition and regime-linked actors, recommendations for a different shape of a political process. The binary logic of the Geneva process was never viable. They recognized that it was set to remain deadlock, idea that a single opposition could represent the different shades of dissent, I believe, was misplaced, and that's what we were told. And that gave re the regime the perfect foil. Um, our work is focused on adopting an approach that is both bottom-up and top-down, as I've told you. So we've developed broad ideas sourced among Syrians of all political stripes and how to get beyond that deadlock. 
while recognizing that, as I've said again, and I've sort of already focused on a lot, a top-down alignment. So first, in 2016, uh, we had a process which lasted for more than a year and a half that produced a draft framework paper on constitutional reform among independents and oppositionists. Then in 2017, we worked with regime-linked loyalists who came with the authorization of, those, uh, on, of, of regime circles with oppositionists on a working paper on a Syrian-Syrian uh, dialogue. These dialogues develop recommendations for revisions to the time frame and the formats of the process. What are Syrians telling us? They said we do accept now there needs to be a more gradual process introducing incremental change over an extended period. A negotiation driven by a broadened Syrian-Syrian dialogue involving oppositionists, loyalists and independents um, has to be shaped. It has to be accompanied by some form of technocratic governance um, in order to create a more secure and safe environment. And in fact, if you look at Idlib, or if you look at the Northeast, that is possible. What is possible in the regime-controlled areas is, is, is another question. It's been accepted on both sides that such a process should take place without preconditions on the basis of an open, quote-unquote, an open ceiling, while agreeing an agenda covering issues that must be tackled in such a dialogue, including governance, the role of the president, the distribution of powers, the role of foreign forces, security sector reforms, and terrorism. All of this would work towards a political agreement, or at a minimum a set of constitutional or super-constitutional principles, understandings that form the foundation for any future exercise in constitutional reforms and, uh, and elections. There's a firm insistence, and let me just dwell on that for a second, in fact, no, often the, it has been said to us, we cannot be rushed into a constitutional process. We need a political foundation first in which to do that. Um, and many would say that where is it in the Arab world or anywhere else that you've got peace just through a constitutional process? There are underlying issues which need to be agreed first. How can you do that? Well, Syrians that we have been speaking to, and again, across a very wide spectrum, talk about such a Syrian-Syrian dialogue. But for that to happen, there's been a firm insistence on the need for international sponsorship for such a process, UN-led, Russia and the United States strongly <coughs> supporting. And agreeing that dialogue must begin outside Syria, but in the end, uh, end inside the country. This included ideas that could render such a process more effectively Syrian-led, as opposed to just paying lip service to it, which is often what we hear. Um, they talk about, in that respect, a Syrian organizing committee formed through mediation and agreement that would nominate and agree participants in the dialogue, again with UN support. These proposals had been widely circulated already among Syrians um, and amongst internationals. They are in most of the key capitals. And I have to say to you that after today and later this week, we will actually be publishing for the first time the two papers that I mentioned to you so that you and many others can actually see the Syrian ideas that have been developed, which I can't do full justice to in summarizing here right now. So you'll see them on our, on our website, um, and, and we hope that uh, if you're interested, you will go and have a look at them in, in much more depth. These proposals have resonated what we came to see in the UN's call at the end of 2017 for a constitutional committee, and then the Sochi Congress. This is not the model 
that Syrians have been talking, we've been talking to, would have chosen, but is broadly seen as opening to do the door to a more inclusive process. And remember, it's the Russians. Even if you, many of you or others would say that this is, the Sochi Congress was a sham Congress, it did open the door to a much more broader, more inclusive uh, process. They generally continue to see a constitutional committee, if balanced and inclusive, as a viable entry point to a wider process. But at the same time, many, including among some participating loyalists, strongly argue that a constitutional committee should not rush as I've just said to you, to produce a new or amended constitution. It must also provide for broad and deep consultation among Syrians based inside and outside the country through a parallel Syrian-Syrian dialogue, or dialogues, perhaps formed from the wider body of delegates, and that the constitutional reform cannot be the only game in town. Dialogue must also work toward viable measures for creating a safe and neutral environment inside Syria, allowing for the return of refugees and the effective application of the principles and measures agreed. Indeed, other historical examples have shown that in order for a transition from war to peace to be sustainable and to avoid lapses back into conflict, decisions made early in on the process matter and reforms and political change should not be rushed. I was at the UN when we in 2005 pushed through three elections um, in Iraq. The first election at the start of the year, a referendum in, in October and then a, another election in December. Well, I would say to you, rushing that process under a timetable of another American president didn't actually help us to solve a lot of the underlying issues. Maybe it even helped to exacerbate them. So what is the value in such a reshaped process? First and foremost, it empowers Syrians. In order to deflect the government of Syria's recent criticism of foreign interference in the sovereign affairs of the Syrian state. This is what Foreign Minister Mualem basically told the UN envoy, Stefan de Mistura, very recently, in that he should not, even though he was mandated to do so, determine the third list of the Constitutional Committee, uh, for example. Secondly, the argument can be made that to Russia that slow, gradual, stability-prioritizing change will safeguard their interests in Syria, because such a process will take time. But it will actually start if it's given the space in a much more credible way than, than we have up till now. Now, of course, and we can talk about this, it's not easy to make this work. As I just referred to in, in the case of what Stefan has just found when it comes to get a constitutional committee going, um, there is no Syria process silver bullet. Um, and we should not be surprised that the regime continues to drag its feet and try to control the process, a sign that even something that many see as unthreatening to regime power is not considered by them as a major concession. But internationally, there is now more alignment around the contours of a process. There's no longer, we're no longer having a sort of a discussion between regime change vis-a-vis -vis survival, now agreement on pushing forward on something which is more inclusive, including eventually a constitution and elections. A constitution which is really about the future shape of the Syrian state. Um, but it will still require heavy lifting from Russia. Let me just come back to that. Moscow is struggling to bring the government of Syria to deliver on what was agreed in Sochi. 
participates in the formation of an inclusive and balanced constitutional committee. Moscow has been either unwilling or unable to get the Syrian government moving. There are no indications of that radically changing anytime soon. But Russia should understand that in the absence of a credible national level political process and with the U.S. staying in the Northeast while economically not allowing it to, uh, to gain, in fact, focusing on its strangulation, Syria is set for further permanent fragmentation and division going forward, which will hardly allow Moscow to successfully claim the role of peacemaker internationally and to extricate itself with the retirement package that I referred to earlier. And there is some reprioritization that is needed also by the small group. We can't just take a contain and wait and see approach. As we've seen in the last eight years, you can't contain this conflict. You have to work to resolve it as difficult and as complex as it has become. Therefore, we need to put Syria on top of the U.S.-Russian discussion. And let me just give you some very quick quotes before I finish. Russia is stuck with Assad for the time being, we've been told by a Russian. doesn't see another partner except for its situational partners in the Astana Troika. It also says Russia is in search of a partner, wants to pay off in Syria, but is unsure whether this can fly. But for now, it remains buried under other priorities. Syria remains, as I said before, a secondary issue. Now, on, we've heard from others on the U.S. side we burden ourselves with trying to solve all the regional issues, and this is a point I would make, the Turks, the Kurds, Iran, Israel, we'll see an infinite progression of unfortunate failures. We need to put the Syrian issue itself central and jettison the outside considerations or at least making them second-order problems. Yes, the other problems are attendant in Syria, but if we don't start by actually focusing on a Syrian-Syrian solution, we're not going to be able to address those um, at all. So to recap, what is concretely needed for us to move forward in the direction? We should support the new UN envoy who's coming in. In fact, it was one of my former bosses, Gerd Pedersen, to establish an inclusive and empowered constitutional committee. But we need to go beyond that. As I've said already a number of times, we need to support an inclusive Syrian-Syrian dialogue that gives a voice to all Syrians, including those who don't necessarily associate with either the opposition or uh, the regime. We need to foster international understanding and cooperation on the basis of these Syrian proposals generated at such dialogues, induce Russia to cooperate through a mixture of credible leverage and openness to dialogue. And fourthly, we need to increase stabilization efforts, as I've already said, in the Northeast, initiate power-sharing agreements between Arabs and Kurds, and prevent the emergence of new hotbeds of conflict, which could undermine any of the efforts that I'm talking to you about at the national level. Why should we care to make this work? There is, and I haven't referred to all the figures, there is today, after eight years of war, great skepticism toward any Syrian political process. I even see it with envoys, eye-rolling, fatigue, lots of time spent in hotels watching a process which has gone nowhere. But let us remind ourselves that at the end of the day, it is Syrians, it's the Syrian people who are bearing the brunt of this ongoing conflict in Syria. Leaving aside the interests of all external powers, 
Europe, the migration concerns, the Russia's strategic interests, Turkey, security considerations, the U.S. containing Iran, etc. And if we don't get the foundation for Syria's long, slow transition from war to peace right today, not only Syrians but the international community writ large will have to live with the consequences for decades. It, and again, we can go through a long list. Syria will continue to destabilize the entire MENA region. It will continue to exacerbate Israel-Iran or Turkish-Kurdish relations, and it will continue to play into broader Russian-Western confrontation. Getting the foundation for that transition right requires more than anything else listening to Syrians. And I hope you'll go and look at the documents that we will publish. When and where, as I've said before, has the international community been able to do this without people? The Syrian people have shown to us, and we're now talking about thousands that have engaged in our own processes, we have about three meetings a month, that they are able to come together, they're able to forge ideas, and those ideas now, I think, need to be front and center of a political process. Let me stop there. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. You clarified quite a lot, uh, especially for someone like me who knows very little about Syria. Also made me glad that I work on the Gulf instead. Um, so <laughs> thanks very much. So I guess we'll open up to questions and comments. Uh, if you can introduce yourself and then have a brief question or comment rather than kind of a full summary of your thesis, that would be ideal. Um, so uh, yes. Hi, my name is Zatib. I'm a student here. I was wondering what do you think the implications of the change in the special envoy would have on the line of work that you're doing? Yeah. Uh, should we take, uh, I think there's someone right next to you as well. Yeah, hi, um, my name is Farah. Thank you for your uh, your talk. My question is more on the inclusive Syrian-Syrian dialogue that you were speaking of. So can you speak more about what that, that inclusivity entails and perhaps are you more focused towards uh, reconciliation or transitional justice and how do you avoid further legitimizing the Assad regime as it stands? That's a long question. <laughs> um, I guess we can start with those two. Sure. Uh, first, changing the special envoy. Well, as I said, I, I worked with Gair and I worked for Gair um, uh, in Lebanon. I worked for him and uh, uh, I worked with him for in, in many other places. He, he, he's a guy, I think he, he will bring a certain new style of diplomacy. He will, I think, take further some of the approach that Stefan de Mistura started when it came to making Syrians much more part of the process. If you recall, um, we've had three envoys, all of which I worked with, actually, the late uh, Kofi Annan, um, Lakhda Brahimi, and um, Stefan. We found it very difficult, to be honest with you, to get the UN to take a more inclusive approach early on. Uh, and here I won't talk about uh, uh, Kofi, because these were, those were very early days, and his uh, six points in trying to move towards creating the conditions for a process, I think still stand the test of time, or parts of them do. Um, but after that, the UN very much focused on hoping that the Russians and the Americans would come together. And many would still say that we still don't have that ripeness. But in the meantime, I think there was a lot that we could have done by, by trying to bring Syrians into the process. Now, uh, Stefan did that, tried to do that. He established um, the civil society rooms, the women's advisory board, uh, and experts groups, including on the constitution and other things. But here's the problem. They were still auxiliary or secondary to the process. Um, they should not have been. 
let me be very blunt here. Uh, uh, and, and by the way, when we started, we had a number of Syrians who were in our, in our pro, uh, dialogue discussions, some of whom sort of were elevated to the track one. Why? Because they happened to be in a particular group and they were associated with a particular capital, <laughs> a regional capital, Riyadh or Doha or, or Istanbul or Ankara, I mean, or whatever, uh, backed up by in, uh, international powers. And others were not. Well, who has... I'm not saying that they are less worthy, but why isn't it that other Syrians were able to have an equally important impact as such? I hope Gare will, will look at this um, because, you know, the civil society room and other such things only were able to contribute so much. After a while, maybe some of you were part of it or know people who were part of it, people began to wonder, are we there just to tick the boxes? Are we there to make it look as if something is happening here? Or, or are we really able to impact the process as such? So I hope that the ideas that we are talking about, the UN Envoy will look at them very seriously. And certainly we are looking to, to, to talk to him, but we have to wait. Um, there is still an Envoy. Stefan is still very much focused on trying to get the Constitutional Committee going, and he's struggling, but, you know, it's not over just yet. Um, you see a lot of diplomatic activity behind the scenes, including by the Russians to try and get something like that going. But even what we're saying is that, and what Syrians have told us, even if there is a constitutional committee, there needs to be a broader process, uh, which is that Syrian, Syrian. And, and, and to, what you, to the second question, let me just go to that. Um, a Syrian-Syrian dialogue which um, enables Syrians, we're still talking about essentially a group of elites we're not talking about a national dialogue yet, and let me make that distinction. A national dialogue, in its truest sense, is really not possible um, inside as well as outside Syria. You're talking about, but you are trying to see how you can bring a broad group of people into the process that are really able to affect it. And work, if you look in, in the working paper on Syrian Syrian dialogue, you'll see there are about eight or nine agenda items which they have identified which a Syrian-Syrian dialogue could work on. It could be through various committees or various dialogues which are then uh, put together uh, and which is initially organized um, by a, a Syrian organizing committee. Now, that won't happen unless, of course, the international community is inclined to do so and that the UN essentially backs such a process because the UN has one thing which not even Russia or the United States or anyone else has, it has the ability to confer legitimacy on a process. And that's very, very important. And in the absence of that, these kinds of ideas will not really uh, take root. And then, of course, uh, uh, I would say to you that with regards to reconciliation, transitional justice and these things, these probably are part of a longer process of dialogue that needs to place, probably a national dialogue, um, whereby which Syrians are able to address what's happened, to address the near past and the distant past as well, and find, again, ways in which to forge trust and confidence um, and, and work together politically to, to shape their new state. I, I would say we're still probably some way away from that, whilst that's not to say that that effort at, at preparing for that and organizing for that should, should not be continuing as it, as it is and as we know that it is. Um, yes, sir. Uh, I'm an alumni. Uh, 
Vai Sudi is a very interesting talk you had with us. But I would like you to remind you see, long before you were in primary school, uh, George Callan and this Kissinger met his father and wanted, you see, to bring about the situation where his opposition to Zionist colony in Palestine to be reconciled and, you see, the old two wars which happened. I wonder whether it is possible for Americans ever to be reconciled with Syria where the Palestine situation is still. And the Americans have tried time to time wherever any country doesn't toe the line of Americans. If you take the case of uh, Palestine, Lebanon, Iraq, Afghanistan, they want to move the whole thing in the American um, so I wonder whether it's possible. And the second question I want to pass is uh, how many different Alawis uh, is one of the constituents. There is also Ismailis. What, what sort of, have you talked to this uh, small group of people as such? Sure. I would like to know. Sure. Um, I'm going to take one more this round. Ah, yes, ma'am. Yeah. Um, hello, I was a student at LSE, um, just finishing my master's. So my question is, how much of the peace process which you're working towards, or any peace process in Syria, is hampered by the presence of international actors, those international actors who have from the beginning been antagonistic towards the Assad regime? Mm -hmm. Because in my view, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it make more sense to have only those international actors who are supportive or who are friends or allies of Syria because it's just common sense that Assad or anybody else would more likely listen to their friends than their enemies. So why even have these actors, external actors, um, who are more keen on getting their share of the pie and are actually you know, probably hampering the process? Thank you. Uh, and I'm going to add one more cheeky question. I, I wanted to ask about the role of the Muslim Brotherhood, the Syrian MB, in terms of the dialogues and, and how you see it kind of moving forward. Sure. Thank you very much. Um, first to you, sir. You're absolutely right. I, does, I wasn't even in primary school when Kenan and Kissinger, though I'm, I would tell you I've had, I've had the, the pleasure, I guess, of speaking to Henry Kissinger about Syria and quite a few robust discussions um, about it. Um, I guess he comes from the realist school, whereas I, I don't always in, in when it comes to uh, comes to the Syrian Well, you know, you know Syria. Um, but to say, if, if I get you correctly, that you, we can't really move forward unless the Palestinian situation is, is resolved first. Um, look, of course, uh, everything is connected in that part of the world, and particularly in the Levant. I also worry about Lebanon. Um, you know, if Lebanon goes, where do so many Syrians go? Or, you know, what effect does that have on the broader situation? And of course, what we're seeing in Gaza now, a place where I lived in 2000, the start of the Second Intifada, uh, is again another cycle of violence, which can have uh, very bad negative effects for the entire region and, and, and more globally. But I, think, um, but I think to say that we have to wait for the Palestinian, Israeli-Palestinian situation to be solved 
or somehow put it in competition with the Syrian situation, I think we would be wrong. Um, uh, there is a responsibility on uh, international actors to work to try to resolve both, of course. And, of course, many Syrians look at dread with the Palestinian-Israeli peace process, which has lasted so long, and start to wonder, is this our fate, <laughs> you know, as such? Um, so, and, and let me also remind you, of course, that most Palestinians have probably been killed by one party in Syria, um, which is on the government, from the government side, than they have. So they are being affected, and they have probably the worst, some of the worst luck possible, having been in refugee camps and then having to go through that fate. So no, we need to work seriously on, of course, an Arab-Israeli and Palestinian-Israeli uh, 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 ending and a just solution to that, including, in my view, a two-state solution. And, but at the same time, we need to work just as seriously um, with regards to the Syrian issue. Uh, it's, it's, it's vitally um, important. Um, uh, with regards to the Alawis, uh, the, you mentioned Alawis, Ismailis and others. Yes, we, we try to reach all sections. We've had uh, Alawis, we've had Ismailis, um, Syriacs, all, 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 all different. In fact, uh, some of my colleagues here, we've gone out of our way to try to reach even different religious leaders uh, and community leaders in, in that respect. And it's important that we continue to do that. And we can't do it all by ourselves. We also look to partner with organizations who are really working on the ground in that respect. What we try to do in these dialogues is to bring as many new people and new f uh, voices and new faces as possible. So we haven't stuck with the same static group from the start. In fact, it's, it's evolved um, a lot. Um, presence of international actors, you're absolutely right. The ones who can have the biggest impact on, uh, on the Assad government are, of course, the Russians and the Iranians. Um, with regards to Iran, and maybe I should have said something more on that, Iran has to be at the table. I'm not one of those that would say Iran should be excluded. But at the same time, Iran has to face, having put forward its own ideas of a four-point plan, which include constitutional elections and often paying uh, uh, at least lip service to a Syrian-led process, has to now act and follow through in much greater good faith in allowing something like uh, that to take place. And right now it's a crucial moment, for example, on getting a constitutional committee going. And we see that the uh, Russian envoy, Mr. Lavrentiev, recently was both in Tehran and in Damascus discussing this. So, absolutely, um, you know, but at the same time what we've seen is that unless pressure is not applied, even on those actors, they're not likely to move uh, the, uh, the Assad government. Um, you're absolutely right. Uh, the involvement of other international actors the Gulf states, for example, when it came to supporting different armed factions, which, which led to a further fragmentation, actually, of the opposition, um, as well as the, the varying roles of, of European and the U and US side, has not always proved to be helpful. Um, but I, say, I would say I, I'm not as worried about that as just the international community doing its job. And when you have a conflict like this, the enforcement at least, or at least a much greater focus on international law and working collectively to end the conflict is vitally important. Syria, as we've now all 
I observed, I think, is, is not just a Syrian matter. So it does require. But where we have to now look to see is, can the big global powers come together to support a Syrian-led process? We believe they can. We believe we are reaching, perhaps, a moment of diplomatic ripeness, as one of my former bosses used to say, particularly with regards to the Russian and American engagement. Um, that's not me being naive. It's, it's basing it on conversations that we're having. But we've got to find a way whereby which they base that conversation on real substance. And I believe a lot of that substance should be provided by Syrian ideas. And they should be encouraged uh, to, to reach out to, uh, to one another, and that from a broader international community. And, that, and what's interesting is, is that whether you're talking about uh, Chinese or Indians, and others in the international community in the non-aligned, we're starting to hear some of that. And I hope that will also uh, take us to realize perhaps the, the, uh, or further develop this moment of, of ripeness. Because if we don't, nothing in Syria stays static. We will lose this opportunity. And I think that would be a very big, um, a very big shame. Syrian Muslim Brotherhood. The Syrian Muslim Brotherhood um, uh, I guess has faced uh, sort of varying notions of its strength and its role. There were times when it was seen as being quite strong, organized, but then where it made a lot of mistakes, where it was seen as holding back, but then also now looking to find its, um, its, uh, its strength in, in, in a political role. And so surely... Um, it is there. It is, it is, I guess it is more diminished, I would say, than perhaps it was at the start of the conflict. Um, and I'm not sure, but what I would say is, is that, not just regarding the Muslim Brotherhood, but with regards more conservative Islamist elements, they have to be very much part of a Syrian, Syrian conversation. You mustn't try to exclude those, especially if they are committed to a political process, which they are. Um, we were being advised often when we were doing our dialogues early on, focus on the secularists, exclude Islamists and, and, and that. And of course, we didn't take that advice. You have to be able to bring our job, and I think the job of the international community is to help create the space for Syrians of all spectrums to be able to come together. Um, my own view is that uh, Islamists don't form the majority view inside the country. Um, but they are a very important component. And in the debate that will take place, if it ever really is allowed to, to take off on a new constitution, there are a lot of issues which will require a lot of time to find consensus on. Um, and one of those will be the role of religion and in society and in, in the country's laws. It's, um, it's Helpful. Uh, any other questions, comments? Uh, yes. Uh, the, the political process and negotiations and dialogue will take a, a long period. And in the meantime, the regime is pushing ahead with uh, reappropriating land and property. And uh, a report came recently showing that the regime is actually bulldozing areas that came under its control. And uh, from your understanding of how uh, the regime, the government of Syria, was. Is there any pressure or leverage can be used basically to protect the rights of those states? Um, any yeah. other, one more question this round or? No? Okay. Oh, yes. Yes, ma'am. Um, 
Uh, my question is, uh, and I came a bit late, so maybe this has already been uh, covered, but my question is, um, do you think the international community and peace-building organizations should have done anything different um, at the start of the conflict? Um, uh, I mean, uh, I was involved in an in, uh, uh, inter-religious dialogue on Syria, and I think maybe we've got a lot of things wrong. Um, so I would like to hear... What kind of things would be good to hear from you on that? Um, I think... Um, Western organizations were very poor in their assessment um, of the future, kind of um, the balance of power, um, how strong the regime is. Um, I think we were quite flawed in the way we, um, yeah, in the way we assess the situation. So I'd like to hear your view on that. Yeah. Um. Let me start with you, and then I'll come to you, sir. Um, I, I agree with you, um, wh which is why I think initially we should have done much more just to hear Syrian voices and, and to hear as broad a broader spectrum as possible. Um, I was not one of those that thought that um, the Assad regime would, would crumble after a couple of months or, or whatever. If you know anything about the security structure, and uh, the nature of, of the regime and the cadres within it, uh, that was not going to happen. Um, but we really don't know, unless at the same time, as I've said before, uh, you are able to create an environment where people are able to engage. We found it very difficult early on to get people from inside Syria, particularly regime loyalists, to take part in the discussions. Um, and it was because they weren't encouraged to do so. And we had certain governments, the Norwegians, the Swedes and others, who even on our behalf were trying to encourage that kind of, of engagement. Now that, over a period of time, has changed to a certain degree, though I would say these days that perhaps it's become um, a lot more uh, restricted than it was perhaps even um, a few months ago. Um, it's only on the basis of the kind of knowledge that you build up over that period of time, are you then able to put forward uh, perhaps uh, ideas um, which could perhaps uh, have a much greater impact? But of course, if you remember, the Russians stepped in because the Assad government was about, uh, the regime was about to fall. I was in Moscow in summer of 2015, and one of the senior interlocutors told us we'd be, we're now faced with a choice. Our military is telling us he's got a, a couple of months. Um, the, uh, so it, it's not as if that it was going to endure permanently, but in terms of finding a, uh, finding a way whereby which we can engage with the broader spectrum, yes, I think it, it was it was always going to be uh, very difficult, but the international community should not have continued to pursue a, well, uh, maybe you didn't hear me on this, a binary process, regime opposition, which meant that many, including those uh, uh, who perhaps considered themselves loyalists or those who did not, were not able, uh, and up till now have still not played any great meaningful role um, in terms of shaping um, such a process. Um, now we have a chance, 
uh, way by which, and it is to your question, um, it is it is going to take time. Um, it is we are talking probably a, a process uh, where by which maybe of two three years up to the next elections, um, which is an opportunity. Um, <coughs> but there's still a lot to do in order to in order to uh, perhaps get to a situation whereby which um, change is possible um, and a, and a real transition um, is possible. And here I'm I'm not necessarily saying. Um, that I can prejudge that. Um, we, we need to see how it takes effect. Um, with regards to things like Law 10 and what's actually going on in the ground uh, at the time, uh, yes, this is a great danger. There's a great danger that uh, you will continue to see demographic change, you will continue to see land being confiscated. Though again, there we have seen, and whether it's Law 10 or Decree 16, a certain amount of internal... Uh, 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 and perhaps with external support, particularly Russian, um, uh, protest, which has been effective. So Law 10, if you remember, the period has now been extended to uh, one year. Just to say Law 10 is where the government of Syria can appropriate property by those who can't prove that they own a particular piece of land or building. And that, of course, many of those people are outside, so how are you going to, to do that? Well, now, under, I think, perhaps some pressure, um, uh, I would say Russian pressure in particular, but also other pressure, including internally, that period has been extended to a year. That's still not enough, and, uh, and uh, I, I dare say there will need to be a lot more, lot more pressure that needs to be put on for, for land not to be uh, misappropriated in, in this particular way. Uh, on, on Decree 16, the Al-Waqf, there is quite a, quite a lot of backlash, and from what we've heard, there was a genuine concern um, from people that uh, religious foundations and others, and, and the religious authorities, the Ministry of Religious Affairs, were being given far too much authority in this case, and we have seen a change there as well. Um, I guess what it proves is, is that um, some real pressure societal as well, can have some impact, but you have to combine societal and the external backers of the regime in order to be able to get some real um, results. Uh, other questions or comments? Uh, yes, ma'am, in the back. Um, I'm wondering how much you are talking to Syrians without growth, whether they are in Turkey, Lebanon, and how you actually reach out to them to be that, for them to be part of that uh, and there was one more here. Uh, yes, sir. I wanted to know what you think about some of the other track two dialogues that happen in their effectiveness, mm -hmm. like the Carter Center, Swiss Dialogue, or the NASA program. Well, they're brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me speak first to uh, Lebanon and Turkey and elsewhere. Uh, we, we don't have, um, and perhaps we should, um, sort of a structured, um, we don't have the resources this time, outreach to Syrian refugees. Uh, as such, though, through civil society organizations in both Turkey and Lebanon, we are, of course, uh, speaking uh, to to those Syrians in, in, in those kind of diaspora communities um, as such. And uh, in fact, uh, a lot of what we do, we don't do just by ourselves. We try to seek partnerships um, with Syrian organizations. So you mentioned NAFS. 
that's an example. The day after, um, Omran Center. I mean, there's numbers of sort of between uh, a number of organizations that we engage with and 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 try to uh, 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 try to get their advice and their uh, uh, and their guidance in terms of. Um, the Syrian-Syrian dialogues that we've been trying to do. Um, remember, we are trying to, what we're trying to do is to, to bring Syrians together to discuss ideas that would be beneficial and that would uh, lead to a more successful Syrian political process. Um, that, that is the, the, the focus um, um, that we have. Um, yeah, um, with regards to other track twos, look, uh, there's a serious point to be made here, actually. And it and it's also, again, goes to a little bit, in my view, to the culture of the United Nations. Um, track two dialogues, oh, sorry, track two efforts invariably start off by seeing each other as competition. Um, let's be honest in this respect, because there's only a finite number of donors, and you're all sort of trying to get similar amounts of money. Of course, uh, uh, donors could help um, by perhaps um, encouraging greater coordination cooperation, which is what they have done, actually, over the years. Um, there's now quite a well-developed sort of uh, series of meetings which take place in Brussels, led by Search for Common Ground and the European Institute of Peace that bring tractors together. And they've grown bigger and bigger, and they've often featured the UN envoy and other UN uh, officials as well as those from the donor community. But going back to the culture within the UN, um, I think this would have been the UN and the Syrian idea around the Syrian process would have benefited a lot more if there had been a, a much more of a, of a coordination hub established by the UN itself. Um, uh, this is something that actually I spoke to a previous UN Under Secretary General for political affairs in 2014-15. In jargon, even if there was like a P5 um, or, you know, quite a senior person, rather like they have had people focusing on Syrian society and other such things, working to systematically listen to, uh, uh, but also perhaps uh, give some feedback to track twos and their efforts, I think they, they could have been even more benefit taken earlier on than is the case, um, than has been the case over the eight years of the conflict. As I said, I think it's much better uh, developed now, and of course we talk to each other. So I'll give you one example. On our northeast work, we have been, uh, we've even done a joint meeting with the Humanitarian Dialogue Center in Geneva, because they've been doing and have a lot of knowledge when it comes to uh, Syrian Kurds in particular, and it's, it was a good meeting. And of course, all the donors are saying, "Great, um, we, we're doing other such joint meetings with other groups as well." So, for example, on Syrian security sector uh, reform, as such. Um, but I still believe uh, that there needs to be more of a of a centrally driven uh, effort, not just by donors, but by the UN itself. Um, uh, and if that's the case, then I think we'll have a better idea of where we should focus some of our efforts, um, but also be able to impart uh, clearly, democratically, uh, the ideas that come up in these kinds of things. Otherwise, what happens is that it's, it becomes rather selective. So, to give you an example, the Aleppo first ideas that Stefan worked on came from a particular track too. Many of us disagreed with that. Um, uh, 
ideas around constitutional reform, uh, on the other hand, have been um, much more sort of democratically delivered because there are some who took the idea that you have to work on the existing 2012 constitution and amend it. Others like us who take a much more Socratic approach, who, who, who ask Syrians themselves, what is the agenda that you want to set when it comes to constitutional reform, would develop different uh, inputs into that. And, and to a certain degree, I guess those, all of those were taken um, notice of. Um, but we want to go further. That is why we want to publish the papers I've talked about. And the, 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 the draft framework paper on interim arrangements, constitutional reform, I think is an important contribution in that respect. And th those papers are available on your website, right? They will be. Okay. We, we are just um, preparing them. We've also consulted with Syrians to, to make sure that uh, at the end of the day this is their work. Uh, but it's a very large group. But at least some of the, some of the sort of key people, um, whether independent, opposition or otherwise. And, and um, so, yeah, uh, I think by the end of this week you'll, have, you'll see them on, on our website. Great. Yeah, we can tweet that out as well to everyone. Yeah. Um, any last questions, comments? I think we have time for one more round. Uh, Ambassador Plumlee, yes. Thank you, Thank you so much. I'm amazing. I've never heard this overview in this way before. I was just wondering about... Um, how you actually, you're asking, you're looking to other European countries, for example, to put their weight into this and to support the political process and get them to engage. And the whole focus is on a constitutional committee and it's supported by or in parallel with the political process. But will, I mean, you're talking to lots of people, but will credible uh, persons from outside, Syrians from outside, be to engage in such a process, unless there isn't, people are not putting their shoulders the wheel to get concessions on the sort of substantial, immediate, practical things that were uh, mentioned, for example, like Law 10 or Detainees, uh, I mean, that type of thing. Or has that fallen away? I mean, but it, it may have fallen away for the externals, but will it fall away for the, the people that are actually expected, expected to put their name on the line and join a committee? Yeah. Um, and we had I saw two more hands briefly. No? Uh, yes, I'll take these two quickly. Yeah. I was just wondering, yeah. since you said right in the beginning that the target is to have three elections in 2021, whether you have any thoughts who would win? Well, just to be clear, I, what I'm saying is those are scheduled. I mean, those are planned. And actually, in 2020, you'll have parliamentary elections, and then you'll have presidential elections apparently in 2021. That's the plan as such. I mean, I can answer your question more fully in a second. Um, yes. And just a quick question on uh, Brussels conference, the coming one. Mm -hmm. uh, any thoughts on yours on what's on the agenda or should be or should not be on the agenda? Remind me of the Brussels conference. Have I missed something here? <laughs> uh, the, the one in March 19th. Uh, okay. The one that was announced in the agenda. Y yeah. Okay. Um, first, Derek, to your question, you, you're absolutely right, which is why if you look at, for example, paper on a Syrian-Syrian dialogue, there are a series of steps that people put forward. One is around ceasefires. Well, maybe we have some element of at least frozen conflict through these three zones, though not yet fully guaranteed as such. Um, but then there's this whole issue of governance and safe and secure environment. And under that, particularly, for example, under governance, 
there is a hope that there would be some form of governance that doesn't push forward uh, unilateral ideas, but which is focused on service delivery and trying to do the best in terms of delivering to the people um, as such. So, sure, it will be an, more than an irritant to people that these things are happening whilst they're trying to push for this kind of broader Syrians. It's, it's more than an irritant. It's, it's actually what affects people's lives. But there has also been, I'm sorry to say, because of the the nature and the trajectory of this conflict, a certain acceptance of some of these things um, as a way of hoping that the international community will put its shoulder to the wheel and support a serious, incredible and real uh, political process that can uh, achieve some of the broader aims um, uh, that Syrians uh, want um, when it comes to a, a political process. Um, uh, I should also say to you that too often a political process has been used as a fig leaf for inaction <laughs> or uh, to hide behind doing things which, uh, which, which must be done. Um, and uh, uh, that may be something that will continue um, unless, and again, we can get much clearer sort of alignment of interests and, and will around a set of ideas that people are willing to, to move forward on. And that, that of course, is our, our concern. The Constitutional Committee is one idea. Um, the, the Constitutional Committee, <coughs> as, we, as the Syrians have told us, grudgingly many, is that maybe it's a wedge into a more inclusive process. But what they're really looking for is a more inclusive process knowing that writing a new constitution, if it's to be done rightly, will take, uh, should take much longer time and much broader debate than is perhaps uh, um, possible um, right now. Um, if that doesn't happen, then whether it's Law 10 or more demographic change or, 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 or more punitive measures against people inside, I think we'll, we will see continue and perhaps even increase. Um, at this point in time. Um, with regards to the 2021 elections, it, well, <laughs> if you listen to International Idea or you listen to the UN, there are at least 150 different conditions which have to be met for free and fair elections to take place. <laughs> and the UN is nowhere near, uh, sorry, the, the, the Syrian elections are nowhere near achieving something like that. So that, so that uh, hopefully will answer your question as to who will win. <laughs> if, if, you're, if you're not able to guarantee and bring about free and fair elections which are supervised and, and um, certified by the UN in that way, then you're likely to see a result which is perhaps not fully reflective of, um, of, of the real wishes of, of the Syrian people. Um, uh, uh, and there is very little time in order to do that, um, which is again uh, why I think we should be fearful if a process doesn't take off anytime soon, um, uh, which starts to create a much more safe and secure environment for free and fair elections to take place three years from now, it's, it's, it's going to be very much a very big missed opportunity. And we're not likely to see a lot of the grievances um, uh, uh, abate. They will just fester um, inside the country. And, and But again, let me say, 
elections are not a panacea. <laughs> elections are only part of a process of, of, uh, of uh, transformation and eventually reconciliation. But if they're done in, 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 in ways which don't meet international standards, then, then at, at best they don't have a huge impact because people are already so disheartened, or at worst they make things even, even worse in that case. Um, Brussels Conference. Um, you know, the European Union countries have come together now a number of times <laughs> around this. And initially, the first conference, I remember, brought together a good wide spectrum of Syrians from civil society, women and others. But I think they've missed an opportunity because they should have followed that through and, and not just brought them in and, and heard different views and voices, but look to see how they can actually make them a much more credible and real part of a process. And the European Union hasn't got behind that. Um, at best, it continues to, to fund and support uh, you know, the activities of a, a wide number of Syrians, but really to what end when it comes to a political process. So I hope, and hopefully we'll get a chance ourselves to, to make these points in Brussels very soon, I hope that there is a much more of a focus, especially now that the door has been opened to a more inclusive process. Um, whether it's a, a constitutional committee in the middle third as, as, as such, or whether it's uh, around the idea of a broader sort of Syrian National Congress, this is what uh, Sochi very imperfectly um, established. Fantastic. We've covered a lot of ground, um, but I guess we'll, we'll stop there uh, and look forward to seeing the publications um, on, on your website soon and uh, look forward to seeing more from, from the Sheikh Group. I remember in 2011 when we were first talking about kind of track two and, and you've done a lot of work kind of in getting Syrians still involved in the process and central to that process, um, which of course is, is how it should be. So thank you so much and please join me in thanking Salman for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thank you.